everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schink, and I'm joined in the studio today by Adam Daniels. Uh, hello, everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. The last week, we spoke quite a bit about the role of values in striving for a state of mental health. And this week, we thought it'd be a good idea to dive into one of those values in particular, one that we believe deserves a special place in any moral hierarchy, that of self-education. Now, I recently read a little book called The Science of Self-Learning, How to Teach Yourself Anything, Learn More in Less Time, and Direct Your Own Education. The author, Peter Hollins, managed to capture what it seems to me to be the main pillars of a self-educated life, those of having the proper values, higher values, controlling and interacting with information, actively seeking out one's blind spots, and maintaining discipline in the face of a chaotic life while doing so. So today, I thought it'd be nice to discuss those aspects of a self-educated life. And we'll also touch on the different interests, the different interesting books that we've discussed or that we've been reading over the past year or so that we haven't had a chance to discuss on the show. So that said, do you guys have any spot where you'd like to begin? Well, maybe first of all, you could just tell us a bit about the book uh, that you read and basically like what's the main premise and maybe what are some of the suggestions that he makes um, like, what's he thinking of for for self education? Is he, or you know, what's the sphere of um, you know interest or applicability in someone's life? Like, is it like skills you want to learn, or you know, going to school? It is. Does, is there any relationship to like you know university or continued education, or is it more like a kind of personal interest kind of thing? What about that? So the author he discusses. Um, he discusses the dichotomy between that you know you usually think of when you think of a, a self education versus like a university mm-hmm. style education, and he talks about how in a more institutional framework you're you're guided by what he calls extrinsic motivation, you know what you kind of mm-hmm. the basic stereotype of what extrinsic motivation is versus intrinsic motivation, and I think um, that's the, basically what he's saying is that. When you go to school, you're you're driven by fear or the goal to you know become something specific. You know mm-hmm. you want to get a uh, into a certain profession, and so in order to do that, you have to adopt these stereotypical ro- uh, goals or you know ways of thinking. And then once you've adopted them, then you enter that profession. And then for a lot of people, you know that's that's the bill we've been sold essentially mm-hmm. is that you go and you get this piece of paper and then you become this this thing. Mm-hmm. But and then that's. Well, for, I think for a lot of people, that would be kind of where the, the journey ends. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of professionals will continue, like keeping, well, of course, most, or I don't know about most, but many professionals will have to keep up with like the, their field of interest, right? So doctors will continue to read medical journals and, uh, you know, biblical scholars will continue to read the, you know, all the journals that come out on biblical studies, etc. So there is kind of a, a motivation to continue learning that way, but I... I I, just from what you've said, I agree with the main point is that when you go into a university, like the goals are already set up for you. So the, you're basically entering into a path that has already been chosen by other people and you're kind of adopting yourself or um, adapting yourself to, um, to adopt those extrinsic goals and, um, and that extrinsic... Um, the motivations. Yeah. Motivation that was something that I pathway. thought was uh, a good way for him or a good thing that he brought up was with uh, the university style of uh, taking a course and thinking about it in that way that they already have the syllabus set out for you. Yeah. And 
you may be interested in learning a particular skill or a certain thing in university, but uh, that may not be something that they explicitly go into um, in the syllabus in the way that you would prefer. Mm -hmm. And so with that uh, kind of external motivation or uh, external syllabus, it is something that isn't adapted for you because it wasn't meant for you. Mm -hmm. And so if you actually do want to go on and be an engineer, for instance, then his suggestion is to go in and just start asking questions about what is it exactly that I'm wanting to learn? What is it exactly that I'm wanting to do? And uh, it reminded me a lot of Jordan Peterson in that um, it was about planning your life out mm -hmm. and just taking the time to think everything through, ask questions, and uh, really come up with what is it that you want to learn, why, and just, yeah, doing it yourself, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, just talking about motivation and extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And I, I'm not sure that's a tremendously useful concept uh, in a dichotomy because a lot of that motivation that we would think of as extrinsic is intrinsic. We're intrinsically motivated to do things based on, you know, lower drives or, or higher drives. So mm -hmm. we could be, you know, fear is something intrinsic or the desire to, you know, achieve a, 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 some professional goals in order to have a stable family life, that's an intrinsic goal. But then there's what he discusses in the book and what I think a lot of, a lot of us probably experience firsthand is that there is also something else that's, that goes along with actually wanting to educate yourself on any sort of topic. And those are, I think, higher intrinsic goals, like curiosity, for example. Mm -hmm. you, just, you can just be curious and you ha there's no, you're not expecting to get anything out of it. You're just looking at something. You're like, well, what is that? And you, 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 know, you, know, you have to adopt a certain organize, uh, organized lifestyle and a certain set of principles and goals in order to really come to grips with the information as you, uh, as you enter into that field of study. Mm -hmm. So he discusses one way of doing that, which would be, he called, it's the SQ3R method. And it was uh, created, I think, back in the early 20th century uh, by an educational philosopher. But the SQ3R is uh, an acronym for survey, question, then recite, or read, recite, and review. So he recommends when you're you know, entering into a, any sort of field that you first survey it in order to get an idea of how all the different parts fit together. So when you look at, you know, like the field of, you know, like... Uh, biblical history, you know, you don't, he, he recommends instead of just going in, getting, you know, five books on your Kindle and then just, you know, trying to read one and then you're like, well, that didn't make any sense to me. I'll try to read the next one. Well, that didn't make sense to me either. He recommends getting a broader view of the different fields, the different, you know, criticisms. Um, and, you know, and then when you get the book, also surveying the books first. So surveying chapter by chapter, seeing what the author is intending to say, and then formulating questions, what am I supposed to get out of this chapter? What do I want to get out of this chapter? And then after you've done that, after you've surveyed it, and then you've questioned it, only then to actually read it and look for answers to the questions that you've posed. And he goes into the, you know, the different levels of reading that, um, 
you know, like the, he, he discusses four different levels of reading. So you have the elementary level, which is just like you're a child, you're just learning to read. And obviously we've all gotten, you know, gotten past that point right now. But then there's the inspectional level where you're just kind of skimming and you're not really getting very deep into the, um, into the material itself. And then there's the analytical level where you're really probing, you're trying to understand what the person is uh, trying to convey to you, you're looking up terms that you don't understand, you're not just skipping past areas that are confusing to you, but you're actually trying to grasp what the author is trying to convey to you. And then there's the syntopical level of reading, which is the level where you aren't just putting, you aren't just reading this book and then saying, okay, well, now I get. Now I know what I need to know from this author. But you're putting it into context with everything that you know about the field, everything that you'd assumed you'd known about the field, mm-hmm. and that 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 point you're you're trying to you're connecting those neurons so that you can prepare yourself for this next the next question that you have that's unanswered, mm-hmm. that remains unanswered, and. So then I said that there was the survey, the questioning, the re- the reading, and then there's reciting, which is a phase in your studies while you're reading and everything that you're really trying to put it into your own words, mm. which um, Jordan Peterson talks about a lot yeah. is the fact that you know you have to get your hooks into the material, you really have to you have to make it your own as you're going through. Otherwise, you know you you risk losing control of the information, and it's not going to it's not going to make as big an impact on your life as you would want to. You know, you're putting time into this. You're putting effort. Obviously, people, you know, sit down and you're taking time out of a busy day or whatever to read. You know, there's uh, reciting it and making sure that it remains with you past the time that you put the book down is one of the most important parts of the of that uh, that process. And he d- he discusses uh, one technique for doing that, um, which is the Feynman technique named after the physicist, I can't remember his first name, Feynman. I think it's Richard. Richard Feynman, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Where basically he says, you you take the concept that you're working with, and you're ex- trying to explain it in plain English. Just You're just trying to explain to like you would to any child. But you're not trying to, you know, come up with an explanation that's like perfect. Like you're not trying to, you know, perfect your knowledge, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find out what you don't know about it. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find the holes in what you can you can uh, ascertain about whatever you're trying to read. Mm-hmm. And then you, after you've ascertained those blind spots, then you can use that to follow up for, you know, in your, when you return to that material, you're just, you're coming to grips with what you don't know. And uh, an important part of, um, of the process of, of reading the material and then the, and reviewing the material as well. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, well, just a couple things came to mind um, when you were going through that process. One, just kind of, um, there's a connection. I don't know how relevant it is, but we'll see. Maybe, we, maybe we'll discuss it, maybe not. Reminded me of um, the, the little preface or something from uh, the books that Gurdjieff wrote. And then we said to read them three ways. And the first one, to read it as if you are reading a newspaper. So that would, I think, correspond to the second level that you just said, just kind of like the cursory glance, like you just mm-hmm. read it for the you know, basic content and basic comprehension. And basically when you read a newspaper, it's not like, for, well, most people, you know, they're just reading pretty much on the surface, you know, maybe reading headlines and just skimming through. You might read every word, but it's not like you're really getting into the material in depth and, uh, and questioning it. It's just kind of a passive reception of whatever it is on the page. And then the, the third one, 
I'll skip the second for now. The third one was to to read. Um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but something as if like to to try to actually grok what it's saying, to try to plumb the depths of uh, of the writing. And on some level, that might con- uh, compare to maybe the the third or fourth level, third and or fourth levels that you that you read. Or uh, actually, what was the yeah third and or fourth? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. he it's interesting because Gurdjieff gives a a second level that doesn't really correspond to anything he says. He says to to read it as if um, as if you're reading it aloud to someone else. Um, and he doesn't necessarily just say to actually read it aloud. He says to read it as if you're reading it to someone else. And that might be something that is a bit more esoteric, um, that might not apply to, to just everyday books. Um, I think it might, I think the reason that it would apply to like Gurdjieff's works is that he was basically writing like mythology. Like these are kind of like religious texts. So I'd say that maybe that would be a good idea when you're reading something like, like Gurdjieff or like the Arabian Nights or the Bible or something where you're, I think what that might actually mean is to, you're actually reading to a different part of yourself. And um, so you're, you're, you're kind of tricking yourself into it by, by reading as if you're talking to someone else. And then it turns out you're actually reading and talking to someone else. And that's the part of you that is kind of like this in, in embryo, this part that still has to grow and that needs to learn. And that's actually the part that, um, that learns in self-education um, and I and I use that term in the way that Dabrowski used it because for Dabrowski, self-education was one of these higher dynamisms, one of these higher abilities that um, that really only people who are on a developmental path will have. Um, like the vast majority of people who are just like um, kind of stuck at the level of primary integration can't really self-educate because they don't have like a self to 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 educate, or they don't have a um, a self to to do the teaching and in, like so there has to be this internal division that's what he called subject object within oneself where there's like a split bet- within oneself between the higher part and the lower part so whereas most people who just go to school or um, get educated in, in any way you know there's an external teacher and then you are the student but for subject object when you have subject object in oneself part of you is the teacher and then part of you is the learner and um, a- as you progress and at higher levels, then you become more identified with the with the teacher. And, you know, the more the lower self learns, the high- the more you identify the more you identify with that higher part. Until theoretically, you know, you reach that highest le- that highest stage or highest level of human development, where you are kind of totally fused or at you know at one with your personality ideal, where you ha- really don't have anything like. Uh, anything great, anything more um, to really teach yourself, it's more of just like a cumulative effort at that point where you slowly kind of like you get better at certain things, you know, within oneself and, and in your in your interactions with the world. So um, so I'd be interested, um, I'd be interested in knowing a bit more about this guy and if he, this author that you're talking about and if he, um, if there have been any kind of studies that have been done on this kind of self-education, but I, because I'd be curious to see um, how many people respond to it, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's, if anyone can do this, if some people are better at it than others, and kind of what, how that would fit in with like this multi-level perspective of, of Dabrowski's, because uh, I had same, I had similar thoughts to like um, Jordan Peterson's like self-authoring program, because what he's basically doing is, um, at least the the way it appears to me, is that he's basically um, kind of this program is designed to. Um, almost replicate that process of of self-education like you you expanded on the 
the the similarities, right? Where you where you are actually, uh, or Adam, you were talking about this, how you 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 make the plan for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You're you're identifying what will work for you, and then mm-hmm. putting that plan into action. And um, it might be that there are just a, like a certain number of people who do that naturally, mm-hmm. and then a certain number of people who can only do that when it's like uh, a, a, a task for them, right? Given by someone else, like for because I think for a lot of people like who might do the self-authoring program, well, especially when they're doing studies like in universities, they're not doing it because like it speaks to them and they're reaching out for it and choosing to do it on their own. It's part of their like curriculum, basically. You know, mm-hmm. they they get uh, they get credits for participating in certain studies, so they mm-hmm. have to do it. So they're kind of being forced to to um, forced to read as if, you yeah. know, forced to act as if there is this subject object in one in oneself, and um, and even if it's just that, it seems it still seems to have um, great benefits for the you know the kids that do it. So yeah, I'd, I'd just be interested in knowing what uh, what his kind of target audience is, and you know. Who it applies to? Yeah, the, I think there is a, a big <sighs> demand out there for that. Obviously, we see the popularity of Jordan Peterson, but you know his little book—it's short. It's a tiny little book. It's like four dollars on Kindle. You could, you know, you can read it over the course of a, an evening. But it's a—it's uh, the number one bestseller in cognitive psychology on mm-hmm. Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of testifies to how you know when people see this kind of material, they see, oh, you know, I can. There's a way. There's a pat. You know, there's a, a set of instructions for me to to begin this you know self-education process to mm-hmm. begin this subject object process mm-hmm. within myself but, but he, as he points out you know there's a long way that we all have to go before you know that we even begin the actual process of learning because there's a uh, he calls it uh, confusion endurance we have to develop that internal buffer against confusion because that's the you know that's the thing that that hits all of us i mean i think i know Personally, yeah. you know, if I'm pick, if I'm diving into a new subject, mm-hmm. I'm like, I have no idea what any of this means. And you know, there there's different recommendations for dealing with you know material that is you know complicated and completely novel. And you know, I think I don't know if he would recommend it, but basically from the what he discusses in the book is that it seems like he would want you to sit there and to define every phrase, define every word. Whereas I'm not, I've you know, I've heard other advice in the past mm-hmm. is that you don't, you you will start with that inspectional level of reading when you're yeah. you're just going to get familiar to the territory. You're going to you know, you're just going to you're not necessarily going to skim through, but you're not going to stop at every word mm-hmm. that you don't know. You know, if it's you know every four words you don't yeah. know the word, you know, you're going to just put your your mental effort into just skimming it, getting familiarized with it, kind of seeing, you know, like you said, that survey, taking the survey of what the of the uh, the book itself or the material, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a book either. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we have YouTube videos, yeah. we have there's there's articles, there's so much, there's online courses that you can sign up. But mm-hmm. he would say that you what you want to do is you want to, like Adam said, you you kind of set out a plan for what what is motivating you what's interesting to you and then you say like well okay so there's all these different elements all these different areas uh, of this topic that i would need to familiarize with myself with in order to gain any sort of proficiency in understanding it so mm-hmm. now i'm going to he he refers back to benjamin franklin's uh guide for developing the virtues that you know every day i'm going to you know tackle this virtue or this virtue or i'm going to tackle that virtue and then i'm going to look at and see how i stacked up over the course of the week and you know that's you know especially in a hectic life you know if you if you don't um set yourself that kind of a that kind of discipline 
then it's very easy that well you know I really wanted to I really wanted to learn philosophy but you know that's that's not going to happen this week that's going to mm-hmm. happen that week it's even if it's just 30 minutes at a time but he um he he discusses a um, mnemonic <laughs> mnemonic mnemonic device um, called smart goals that I uh, I've learned about. I remember, I'm sure you guys have heard about them, but I remember hearing about them in college. Where smart goals, um, smart is uh, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. So whenever you're thinking about like learning goals, you want to make sure that they're specific, that you can clearly define like this. I want to read this this um, many pages or whatever measurable that would be more like this many pages i mm-hmm. want to at least tackle that at this point in time and achieve, achievable because you don't want to say i want to get earn my phd in two years you know yeah. through my own you know efforts you want to be able to say like, i want to you know um, memorize the russian alphabet by you know in three or four months or something um, relevant personally significant to you and your life so that you have the intrinsic motivation to follow through with it and that you can get your hooks into it that much easier because it's part of your, you know, it's, it's an emotional and intrinsic uh, motivator and then timely so that it's part of your schedule. You know, you can mm-hmm. do it and you know when you're going to do it and you know when you failed, you know when you didn't do it and then you can tackle it again next week. You know, mm-hmm. just like you didn't take your antibiotics this week, so, well, take them again, when, you know, <laughs> at the next, don't triple up the dose because yeah. you didn't take them for... <laughs> For three weeks, but well, and like you made that analogy to medicine, and uh, really, I think <clears throat> that's a that's good advice for for any kind of goal, not necessarily you know a self educational goal, but um, um, and again, Peterson gave that gives that advice, and so did Gurdjieff. You know, when you have goals, when you have aims, the the way to actually achieve them is to essentially take baby steps. You you make sure um, make sure to plan out that. The you you know the the what might be the word like the sub goal that you take um, in service of the larger goal you have to make sure that goal is achievable it has to be realistic and you have to identify that you know and because because it has to be relevant and timely and you know and achievable all those things um, otherwise you set goals for yourself and I think everyone's had this experience especially around New Year of uh, New Year's resolutions where you say oh, I'm going to do this. And then, of course, you fail because it's hard to teach yourself new habits. Um, but it is possible if you if you plan it out correctly, right? And and you can be the, the way to do it is actually to be really easy on yourself by giving yourself like really um, really achievable goals, like to the point where it's like okay, you can even practice this where you you give yourself the goal of doing something that you're going to do anyways. Like okay, you, you're going to brush your teeth. I'm going to go brush my teeth, and then you do it. Because if you're aware of that, if you're aware, it's basically another form of tricking yourself. You're aware, you, you, you basically make your body aware, make that some other part of yourself, your subconscious aware that it has a goal, that you have a goal. And then there's the feeling of achieving that goal. And uh, of course, if you just do that, you're not going to get anywhere. If you just make all your goals, these tiny little things that aren't going to get you anywhere. Because the the larger goal is that you're going to constantly make the goals a little bit harder to achieve. And that's what pushes you to new levels is, um, is constantly pushing the envelope with yourself, seeing how much you can. Because the, the more little things you do, if you just constantly or persistently add um, a little bit more to that like effort, then you find that you can do more and more. And then you, by, by taking those little baby steps, you achieve something after a while that you wouldn't have been able to achieve 
at the beginning of that process, all through just these tiny little will tasks. And so that's really how to how to get things done. And that's actually, I think, one of the positive things about um, like extrin- extrinsic education is that that's kind of built into the to the structure of that education so that people can achieve something, right? So here, the goals are all set out. We've got the whole, the whole syllabus planned out. Um, all you have to do is do what we tell you, and you know, you'll get where you want to go. So that's, of course, it's a limited framework, and, um, but, it, um, but it works like for society at a certain level, and it works for many individuals at that, at that level, right? You have all the people that, all the kids that go to college, I don't know what it's like today because I know colleges have changed a lot over the past tw- like 10, 20 years, but you know, it used to be that, um, well, for me at least, you, know, you go to school and you find that a lot of the people that are in, are in university or college are just there because they are there, right? They don't really have any goals. They don't know what they want to study. And slowly they kind of specialize. They decide what they want to do. And then they get, finish their education, get a, get a job, and that's their career from then on, right? They, without that kind of structure, without the, the kind of motivation just to put themselves in that situation, they might not... Um, or probably would not have learned the things that they learned or gone into that profession. They might have, um, well, there might have been some other kind of like intrinsic forces that kind of like forced them into, a, or not, not necessarily forced, but um, influenced them in such a way to, to get a certain job, right? And to be a certain thing. Like, uh, you know, growing up with a family business, like it might just be expected that you stay in the family business. And so slowly you learn and you kind of find your place. So this is all kind of like, this is why I think extrinsic is actually a good word for it in this case is that because it's because you're basically like fitting into an existing social structure and finding your place within that structure. But there doesn't need to be any real um, like internal, um, like strong internal motivation for that. You can just kind of like randomly find your, find yourself in a position and in a career that you're, that you're in for the rest of your life. And who knows, you might be happy in it and it might be, you know, fulfilling on some level. But there are always going to be individuals for whom that doesn't really fit, and that uh, so it's like they're always like pushing themselves for pu- pushing the- themselves further and looking for something else, right? And I think you can see that dynamic play out when you just look at the like the the norm of any given community or like uh, or field. And so I think there's something like that going on when you look at. Um, well, there are so many examples, but I'll just give one recently um, that I became that I was thinking about just because I was listening to um, an interview or just a basically a talk that Richard Dolan was giving on his YouTube channel about the history of um, like Project Blue Book and like the the official kind of U.S. government and military investigations into the UFO phenomena, and he led up to the Condon Committee, which is basically like the the, the U.S. Air Force was running Project Blue Book, which was their kind of like PR um, investigatory group of like for UFO reports. And it got to the point where, um, you know, they were just, um, they were just, they, they'd gotten to the point in the mid 60s where they had their stock reasons for everything, right? Okay, well, that was just a weather balloon. That was a, you know, swamp gas, that kind of thing. But it got to the point where um, th- there was a question of, well, why are, why do you guys even exist? Like, why are you sp- spending tax dollars on, studying UFOs if your official position is that UFOs aren't real. And so they said, oh, well, at that point, they're like, okay, well, we need to do something. So they basically said, okay, we're going to farm this out to a university. They can do the study, and then whatever they come up with, um, you know, we'll follow their advice to either close down or continue researching. 
course, there's more to the story, but I'm just giving kind of the bare bones to, to make a point. So the University of Colorado, um, headed by <clears throat> uh, Condon, I can't remember his first name, um, ran this study and, um, of course, came to the conclusion that there was no scientific, no probative um, like value to UFO reports, so there was no, no use for scientists to waste their time researching it. Now, and I think that, that position was basically the, the default position for most scientists, like in the, the kind of relevant scientific areas, so maybe like astronomy, and because uh, a lot of astronomers, for some reason, you know, were, um, were the guys that would either research or debunk UFOs. But there was this one guy, not the only one, but there was this one scientist called uh, named James McDonald, and he was a, an atmospheric physicist. And so, so he was kind of an outlier, a maverick, because he was, on the one hand, a very good scientist, like world-renowned. He was famous and, well, you know, as famous as a, any atmospheric uh, physicist can be. Um, but, you know, he looked at this phenomenon and said, wow, there's something interesting here something worth scientific investigation. So he actually spent a lot of time doing actual science and researching these cases and analyzing them. And there was this kind of like drive in him to, to apply what he knew to this, to this uh, new, um, new phenomenon, you know, something that hadn't been studied. Whereas if you look at the, the rest of his like scientific community, there was no interest really. And, it, and, and they were completely dismissive of it. Like, oh, that's not even worth looking at. Like Condon and uh, like his number two um, at the time, I think his name was Robert Lowe, um, who had to leave the project eventually because of scandals, but he was influential in the early parts. <clears throat> like his attitude, there was a memo that was released or that was leaked where he basically said, okay, well, you know, we all <clears throat> real or we all know that UFOs aren't real. So, so what we basically have to do is we have to run this study in such a way that to the general public, it will look as if we gave it a good effort and that we were looking like to, to scientifically find the answer. But to the scientific community, it'll be kind of like a wink and nod. They'll, they'll see that we really aren't taking it that seriously. And we expect to come, come up with a negative answer. So basically like we have to play, play to the expectations of both crowds to the public that actually wants an answer and thinks this is worth looking at. That's the impression we'll give. And then to scientists, we'll give the impression that, oh, there's nothing there. And, uh, you know, we're just, um, you know, we're just doing it because we have to. And, um, you know, you, we'll come to the answer we all think we're, we'll come to. So don't worry about that. So there, it, it, so for someone like, for, for like a group of people like that, there's this like attitude where there, there is no, no curiosity. It's like um, for a person who like has this um, kind of, self-educational like motivation like so someone who's done like what you said adam who's really thought about their their career or you know themselves and what matters to them and uh what aspects of everything that they are interested in and the questions they want to ask and the answers they want answered like that's in any field that i would define as like the real scientist of that field right mm -hmm. and those are the people that are that are the most curious that happen to be like well the most talented and they're the people that um, that kind of become like uh, maybe the heroes of non-specialists, right? They they look up at, the, at a kind of person like this and like, oh wow, that person's so great. Whereas most scientists are kind of just like, you know, um, sitting in their offices doing kind of what most people would consider boring work. But when you get someone that's like really into it, like other people can pick up on that. And I think that's that's really what people are picking up on is that there is this this kind of uh, marriage between 
their career choice and their like personality, their their essence. And so a guy like James McDonald was like perfectly. Uh, there was that perfect marriage between his interests and his abilities and um, and his career. And so when he was when he came up against a problem, it's like oh wow, a, a problem to solve. It's like I don't care what anyone else thinks about this. This on its own has value, and and I'm going to investigate it. For other people, it, it would be like, well, what other people think matters. It's like, oh, well, this this is off this is off uh, off limits for for scientific investigation. So I'm not even going to bother with it. It's like, well, that just uh, you know, there's something wrong with that uh, that attitude. There. So why wouldn't you have the curiosity? It's like even when even when you have someone who. Because I can understand the mindset, right? Because for a lot of scientists, hearing about something like UFOs is for is what f- for again a lot of scientists, but a lot of other people um, think or think of when encountering like flat earthers, for instance. It's like, oh, that's just nonsense. But really, if you if you are um, if you are a, a good scientist, and, and if you're basically um, if you if your position is kind of married to your essence. Like, I think your response would be would be more like, oh well, you know, that's an interesting thing. It was like, well, let's look at all their claims and let's like let's find out and let's let's show how they're wrong, or maybe how they're not wrong. It's like, and 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 again, that would be like for for anyone who knows their stuff, they would be like, okay, well, I know the answer that I'm going to come up with is going to be that the world isn't flat, but still, it's like let's look at the actual explanations. Let's not dis- just dismiss these people as crazy. Let's say, okay, well, hmm. look. Well, here's a, here's this, and here's this, and here's this, and um, the, instead, there seems to be like this kind of like arrogance that comes along with just um, with the with the people who have gotten into this career who have just kind of found themselves there. Basically, I think that's like my main point is that for the people that just kind of find themselves there, there's no kind of real um, real drive or real passion or curiosity because if you had that, you know, well, if you have that, then it shows basically. Right, there's a. It's like Jonathan Haidt was uh, recently giving an interview, I think, to Joe Rogan, and he discusses the fact that you know we're really good at playing games. We have so many different kinds of games that we play, human beings, but we've got this new game called like the truth-seeking game, and we're not very good at that. You know, we're we're more interested in games that enhance our prestige, and so that's a big thing that motivates us. You know, that's a huge motivator for most people. And I think especially if you're getting into prestigious positions, you know, like mm-hmm. science or, you know, doctors or those kinds of things, is that, um, like you said, you know, people who just end up there, you know, that's prestige is huge. And not only that, but the stability of your career and knowing that if you endorse ideas that will invite ridicule on you, that you are inviting punishment of some kind. You know, it could be financial punishment, you could get fired. Um, you know, if you if you buck the status quo, there's danger. But that's part of the truth-seeking game. That's the game of truth-seekers, is that there is that inherent danger when you're on the path, seeking mm-hmm. information, seeking the truth wherever it will lead. There's just this sense that, like, well, you know, it, it might not pay off for me, but if, if the truth is out there, and I put it out there, it could pay off in some way. There could be some benefit, some net po- uh, positive benefit. And even if there isn't, it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. And I think that, you know, that's just, a, isn't that just a renewing an annual, perennial problem for, 
for humanity is this, uh, you know, especially now with, with science, is that we have this truth-seeking game with all the tools of different kinds of ways of investigating reality and then, uh, and then bending it to our will, but we don't have very many truth-seekers. Yeah. And I think if, if anything, um, well, I, it's, it's this weird kind of paradox, because I agree with you that we don't seem to have very many truth-seekers, and these would be people that are, that are you know, so devoted to the truth that they um, kind of will, um, will approach a topic or a question that has the potential of tearing down their entire belief system, um, and they'll, they'll approach that willingly. And maybe not um, like, uh, maybe not without any trepidation or you know, um, right. fear or um, you know, some strategy, right? But they're willing to engage in that process, and I think that's a really rare quality. But on the other hand, I think that there is a progress to um, to science that that is kind of um, it's more it plays itself out on a, a longer time frame that is you know outside the life of any individual or of any clique or um, you know, group where, um, well, of course, things go up and down, but I think there is a, a trend at least um, in the in in a positive direction, and um, and I think that just plays itself out through um, through the through the way that Jordan Peterson describes free speech. Right, it's where you state your your convictions as like sloppily and you know incoherently as you know, as limited by your own limitations, and then someone else responds, and that forces you to to think and to revise your position, and that gets played out kind of like on a macro level in the you know the entire community, and there seems to be a direction in that. Now, then again, like it's not perfect, and because um, you know any any field can be, um, I'd say, like run by. Um, or guided by like uh, a delusion, by a you know a false belief, a false system, but at the same time, you know, I can't I can't seem to escape the you know what I see to be the trend of of mm-hmm. this positive growth. And I, I and the reason I I say that is just looking in like any of the fields that I kind of study on a, on a basic kind of you know whatever whatever level a, a layman like me can can approach a study like biblical studies or something like that. Like I look at um. um at what people were writing like a hundred years ago, and then I see how things have progressed since then, and it's actually you know quite quite remarkable that 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 kind of stuff can happen. Now, of course, there are still tons of problems and things that I think are wrong about not only the field in general, but you know a lot of the specifics. But there's still this trend that I see, which I just think is interesting. But um, did you have anything to say about that? Because well, just the the fact that you know it's the science is so economical, and you know the usage yeah. of their words, and you know scientists. It's it's a game that that like you said it takes place over a long period of time, and you know you you can't just come out and say no you all are wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's not that's not how science works because I mean they're uh, they're just scientists are just as tribal as as any mm-hmm. of us so yeah. you you have a core group of you know let's say four or five scientists who have all agreed on some point and they're the the founders of a field they're you know their uh, status quo they're the consensus of those founders could last for you know another century mm-hmm. before anybody is able to yeah. really convincingly say you know take all of the research that's been done and convincingly present an argument and have the prestige and the reputation enough for it to be taken seriously to mm-hmm. say no there's a 
we should look at it differently. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, the, there's, a, there's a bug in here. It needs to be removed so that we can make more progress. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, that there is a trend. It seems like there's a trend just because the fact that it's based, you know, entirely around, you know, people's careers being making these kinds of discoveries or, or making, um, proving or disproving theories. You know, it's it's a system that it has bugs in it, but at the same time, it has the same toolkit built into it to hopefully eradicate some of those yeah, bugs. For, mm-hmm. for error correction. Yeah. For better or for worse, it seems like there's something uh, particularly special about um, science in general just because it was set up with the purpose of finding truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, there's, there's certain individuals who are, you know, we'll say like gifted in a certain way such that, uh, you know, they're more curious than their uh, compatriots. And so even if there is a uh, particular thing in a certain field uh, that's wrong, well, you get the one curious person and then they can work something out. And they're like, no, this is, this is more the direction that we need to be taking. Mm-hmm. And then one other smart person sees this and they get curious and so mm-hmm. they start looking more into it. And so it just has this little thing that never goes away. Evolution, not revolution. Right. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to come back to to something that you'd said about um, just kind of the strategies of of learning something new or engaging in a new, a new field or a new topic. Like, um, um, well, I'll give something that I read somewhere and I'll give my own personal experience of it. Um, Somehow or another, I found a, a blog a year or two ago um, and this is a guy that reads books and then posts reviews of them online. Um, he's also a, a novelist, or no, not a, not, not a novelist, but a writer of some sort. He writes books. And I can't remember his name or the blog name, uh, unfortunately. But um, he was talking about his kind of strategy, um, well, one of his strategies for reading. Because he, at one point, um, he was really into the Civil War, U.S. Civil War history. So he said that when he first got into it, you know, the first book he read, he had no idea what was going on, right? All these people, all these names and places and, uh, and years and, and you know, dates and events, and it was just like a, a total mess. But he just kind of forced himself to read through, like you were saying, just read, just make sure you finish the book, essentially. So he did that. And, um, and you know, he's probably read dozens or hundreds of books on the Civil War since that first one, but he said that just by adopting that process... And not really forcing himself to try to learn everything, so it wasn't as if like every page he he saw something, and so then he, then he went and looked up that event and, and made sure he looked up all the sources for that and read everything. No, he just got through it, and then but he says by 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 the time he was writing this post, it's it's where he the next book or every new book that he reads on the Civil War, um, just through this, well there were some active processes, but pretty much but based on this mostly passive process of just reading and just making sure you're just tr- going for basic comprehension. Every new book he reads on the Civil War, he can um, basically finish the person's thought as he's reading it. He's like, okay, I know what's coming next. Okay, this is what they're going to say. So it makes the new information stand out that much more. And so that's been, it's kind of, it's similar for me, like if, or I'm, I'm sure it's similar for anyone who who reads enough on like one particular topic. Like if um, if you just read a little bit here and there of everything, um, it would be more difficult to notice this this happening in yourself, but like for me, I, you know, I've I've read not a lot, but several books on um, you know biblical studies, and 
I find that that becomes more true the more I read, right? So I'm reading something and it's like, okay, well, I can see where this is going. And, oh, that's new. I haven't seen that before. And, oh, that's old. Oh, well, that's actually, I don't think that's wrong. That's right because, you know, there's this this other argument and this other data from this other source that kind of contradicts that. So I keep that in mind. So it gets, so it's basically, um, you have to kind of, uh, again, I'll use the word marriage. You have to marry this just passive reception of data with the kind of active and goal oriented, um, thinking process that comes along with, uh, um, well, and, and interest that comes along with this, you know, process of, of learning something that interests you. So for me, when I'm, uh, I find that my reading is most effective and my thinking is most effective when I have a question in mind and when I have a goal in mind. So if I'm just, you know, if I just have this vague kind of interest in Bible studies, for instance, and I just pick up a book randomly, first of all, I'll, I'll probably have no real interest in reading that particular book. And when I read it, I'll find it boring and I'll have to push myself to read through it like I'm, you know, starting something new all over again. But if I have a question in mind or just, you know, and it can be a very, uh, a very, um, if not vague, then a very general kind of interest or, or question or goal, then um, that I find makes all the difference. It's like, so recently I've been reading a few books on, uh, you know, on various types of Bible studies, but that are focusing on, you know, what's either called intertextuality or, um, you know, narrative mimesis. So the the use of different writers in the Bibles, like the the gospel writers, and their use of other sources. So, for instance, the the writer of the Gospel of Mark, his use of the the king's narratives in the Old Testament, and um, or the you know Matthew and and uh, Luke's use of Mark. So how how they how those authors have taken the text of Mark and then adapted it in certain ways and added something, and, and at the same time, again, used the Old Testament and sp- certain specific passages from there to um, to cr- craft their own narrative. And so just with that in mind and certain, well, certain other things, but like that as the overarching interest, I find that the, like the, the books I read on that subject are vastly more interesting because I'm actually looking for something. I want to know how this all fits together. I've got this puzzle, you know, this puzzle that hasn't totally been made in my mind and I want to fit those pieces together. So when I find a, like a few of those puzzle pieces, it's like it gives you a kind of like intellectual cognitive rush. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an emotional rush but tied mm-hmm. to tied to this cognitive process, tied to this intellectual pursuit. And um that really is part of um you know finding that that area of interest and um really kind of des- deciding for yourself like you're saying, Adam, about you know, we want to be an engineer. It's like, well, what are the questions you have? What are the th- what are the actual things you want to achieve that you want to do? If you can, f- if you can even just identify some of those, then you'll have the the motivation, or the, the you know, you'll find the motivation to to go through some of the more tedious um, aspects of achieving that goal. And I know if so for for someone just in a in an ordinary university course that might be just some of the courses that you have to take because uh, you know they're mandatory courses on in the year in your uh, you know department or whatever your major is like you know some uh, depending on what you what you're in you might have to take like a statistics course and statistics might be like the you know you have, might have zero interest for it but you know you have to get through it right so that's just kind of like that would be a basic example for for someone just going to school but there are similar things that will happen. You know, no matter what field you're in, it's like, okay, well, if I want to understand this, I have to understand these things first. And those things might seem really boring, but they're going to to help me out in the long term. And that's 
like a, that's a sacrifice, right? The, the way that Jordan Peterson talks about it, it's like, I'm going to, to give up something that I like, like my time, my, my interest, my tendency to do things that I like and not things that I need to do. And, um, and I'm going to benefit from that in the future. Um, so that reminds me a little bit of, um, what Jordan Peterson has said before on, um, university and taking an English course and writing papers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you, if you're just going to school and you're just kind of, you know, doing things cause that's on the syllabus, well, that's not exactly very exciting and it's kind of annoying to have to write all these papers. But mm-hmm. when you put in that little extra thing of, no, you want to learn to write well, because that's how you think. Mm-hmm. And if you can think better, then you can act better. And that can play out in every aspect of your life. So it's, uh, I think like you said before, with like a marriage of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, the Being able to write well means you're able to think well. And when you mm-hmm. exercise your your critical thinking and, and writing at the same time, it's really the same thing. And like you said, Harrison, when you, you know, you're in a university and you're taking these courses, you get tested at some point. And one of the biggest things, I think, when you come out of a university or when you come out of school in general, the institutional learning environment, and you are still trying to use those same techniques of learning of, you know, just, re, re, you know, just, taking all the information in and regurgitating it. Like, oh, I remember, you know, 1867 was the day that blah, blah, blah. You know, and you're not really connecting it with something inside of you because you're used to just having to memorize it, then regurgitate it on demand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, you know, when you're trying to teach yourself something, that's, that's when you have to test yourself. You, you know, there's nobody that's going to come by and, and say, all right, so now answer this, you know, t- 10 question quiz mm. as as useless that as that really is in a lo- any sort of long-term um educational development um like so you like you were saying adam you can you can write you know if you write if you can write everything out and you can explain it to yourself clearly mm-hmm. then you've tested your your knowledge mm-hmm. and like you said harrison if you have a project or some sort of question in mind and you are able to answer it or you're able to complete that project Um, then you have tested yourself. And I think that's why I like little tiny projects, you know, as, as, you know, challenging as, you know, as, uh, as like, you know, rebuilding a car or something and, or as, as simple as just reading a book and then being able to summarize all your thoughts on a, on a blog post or something, Mm -hmm. you know, any kind of project that you know that I want to be able to complete this, or I'm going to test myself by completing this task on this, uh, on this subject. And then you're able to when you when the time comes, you either do it or you don't. You and you're able to see in a tangible results that I think strengthen. They really strengthen you. The more little things that you're mm-hmm. able to do, that you're able to see, like oh, I did this. I, you know, I've I've never worked on this before, but I, you know, I've complete I've completed whatever project I've set out, and I, that's done. It's small, but it, but it still has this um, this. Uh, gives me more strength and more vision, I guess, to, to dare to do a little bit bigger next time. Mm. There was something that, that, that just reminded me of was um, like applying it to just life in general. And, you know, you get to life what you put into it. And so if you are putting in the effort and energy to interact as much as you can with the world around you with questions in mind, um, and plans, and you're executing those plans, you get more of a joy out of life 
than you would if you just you know, went to your nine to five and then went home, watched some TV and then went to sleep and got up the next day and did the same thing. Yeah. You need to have like a, a reason to get up in the morning you know, mm -hmm. for, for something that kind of interests you. Otherwise you can kind of just wither away. Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a, uh, something else I wanted. Yeah. I wanted to respond to something that you'd said, Corey, about, um, like tests. So if you go to school, you you'll 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 eventually be tested on something, and chances are it'll be like a memorization test. Memorization is a big part of you know the the type of exams that uh, that you take in school, and um, but really I, I don't think it's you know except for just the the brute purpose of training yourself to or training your students to like work their memories. I think that's it doesn't really make much sense to me. It's like because when you when you find when you find yourself in a position in a, like a career or a you know a profession or just kind of or a hobby something that you like doing you will remember the things that you need to remember and you will forget the things that you don't need to remember it's really functional right it's not like okay if i'm interested in um um, well, this might be how it starts out. Like, you want to get into history. Okay, well, here are all the important dates in world history. It's like, and so you memorize all of them, and you, you know, you pass your, your, you know, your test. You know, all the capitals of all, you know, all the American states, and et cetera. And it's like, well, it gets to the point where um, some of that will just, you'll retain it just because you were forced to memorize it, and that might be a good thing. But it gets to the point where um, some things just aren't worth remembering, it's like, okay, well, I don't need to remember that. I can just look that up if I need to. And But what I really re need to remember are like maybe... So if you're... Um, well, it's not even that you that you need to remember it. Like I said before, it's like... So if you're if you're a historian or something and you're, you're, st you're focused on a particular event, maybe a, a war, a multi-year war, it's like you'll eventually remember, okay, well, you know, in this month of this year, th these things happen because it's connected to all this stuff. The, the fact itself isn't important to, to be remembered just for the sake of remembering it. It's like it's how it fits into everything else. And if you're not focused on like this particular battle over there and it has nothing to do with what you're like researching, it's like, well, who, who cares if you forget about it? Um, like memory really is like the things that you remember, you, you should, well, you do and you should just remember them if you need to remember them. If they serve some kind of purpose to like your intellectual pursuit in this specific example. So it's like uh, when I read a book, you know, um, depending on what the subject is, like, let's say I'm, this, this happens, I think mostly when I'm dealing with like uh, a period of history that I'm not familiar with, or, you know, a lot of like political stuff where I, I know the broad outlines, but, uh, you know, I'm just interested in the details. When I read that book, it's, of course, it's super interesting at the time, but I don't remember like, you know, 95% or, you know, or, or more of what I read, you know, I think that's, applies to most people right when you read a read a book it's like you don't remember every individual's name and every interaction that they had and um you know all, all the dates that on which these things happened and you don't have to it's like it's not important um but if that's your like particular area of study you will need to know all those things and it will come naturally because it interests you and because it all fits together and it's like and if if you're like looking at this particular series of events and you're you're really getting into who knew who and and when they talked and when they did something. It's like all of this stuff becomes relevant, and and um, it's not like you have to sit down and 
you know, memorize, okay, this happened then, then this happened then. It's like it's the picture forms in your mind to the point where it's like, okay, yeah, well, this happened then, and then this happened. Oh, but this happened two weeks before that, so then this happened. And it's like, so you you create this story in your mind where all the facts kind of fit into place. And um, yeah, so I, I, I really, except for if you're like reciting poetry or something and uh, or songs, it's like, why train yourself to to remember stupid facts? I don't get it. Right. It's the uh, just brute memorization doesn't really never really made much sense to me either. But just uh, from reading the book and and the and just you know just in general practice and everything, it seems like the best one of the best ways to remember something after you've done you're done reading is to take notes after you're done reading. You know, once you're done reading, you sit down and then you start writing out the notes that, about what you thought about what you just read. And then, you know, rather than, you're, I'm going to scribble down notes, you know, I'm going to write down, paraphrase, you know, because I remember I did this for years. I'd sit, I'd be reading a book and then I'd just oh, write down this phrase and oh, I'll write down that phrase. I'm sure I'll remember that. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. You, you, when you're done reading, you sit and then you think. After you're done, then you write it out. And then that helps commit things to memory, right. but in a completely different way, because I'm not memorizing for Mr. Schmidt, you know, yeah. and his geography exam. I'm mm -hmm. remembering things that have value and meaning right. to me, what I see in the context of what I've been learning. I don't care what the, some other guy in his, you know, his uh, quiz has to say about whether I got an A or a B or a C. My, I am intrinsically... W desiring for that that knowledge that mm -hmm. kind of self-perfection because it's uh, a value because mm -hmm. it's intrinsically motivating to learn and to to know more mm -hmm. yeah, it's i don't care what anybody else has to say about you know you passed this test or whatever i mean nobody you i mean you you want that and if you have a very specific you know i want to pass this i remember feeling that way at university i, I want to pass this class i want to get an a oh i got a b i feel like a i'm a total schmuck but, you know, when you're outside of university and you're learning on your own, you realize that there's something much higher, something much more valuable going on inside than just trying to memorize to impress someone or to pass a test or even to... Um, to impress yourself. To impress yourself, to impress anybody. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something much more valuable going on. Well, one comment, but first a question. Is Mr. Schmidt a real guy, or did you just make that? <laughs> I just made that. Oh, that well. darn. I thought, I thought you might have a, a, good, a good memory of, of Mr. Schmidt and grade 9 geometry or something. No, Mr. Jones will remain anonymous. <laughs> well, my comment was, uh, this, this comes back to the thing that you'd mentioned uh, that comes from the book, which was when you stop, I think this was part of the three R's, like when you read something and then you review it, and then, so by, by trying to like summarize what you've read after you've read it, then you find the things that you've forgotten, and if that's like if that's important, like in your paraphrase, you're looking for something, right? So, so you're essentially testing yourself. It's like, okay, well, here's what I just read, and it's important to me for whatever reason. And so then you can say, oh, but just wait a second, I'm I'm writing, and then I, I got to this point where I can't really remember, you know, what comes next or why or where it leads or how it fits together or what this person was. So then you go back and you're like, oh, that's what it was. And so you've for, you've forgotten, you've identified a, a lapse in your memory. And then, but you've been motivated to then find the thing that you've forgotten, and hopefully, like ideally, that will that will be for a reason, right? It's it's because for whatever reason that thing that you're reading is important to you in some way, fits into some larger picture. Um, otherwise, I th and I think this is the way most people read. It's like you know they just go to the store, they find something that looks interesting, they read the book, and then they forget about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's a diversion. Um, you know, that's why most people read novels too. A lot of different, like, you know, you go to, that's why they call them like airport novels, right? You go it because you read it just to, to kind of like take your mind off life for a while. 
Um, you're not really, and that's really the only purpose that serves. But if you're if you're actually motivated in learning something, this would be like the self-educational aspect. Then it's a different process. It's like you're not just passively taking things in and uh, you know forgetting about them once you once you finish reading the book. And <clears throat> as for like what this would apply to, I think that um, well, how the, not what this applies to, but um, how it fits into the bigger picture. Like uh, from I'll go back to Dabrowski. What he said about self-education is that uh, you know it wasn't necessarily just teaching yourself a new skill or um, you know new a new whatever. It was actually in the service of development. So for him, of course, like self-education was or had to be in the service of development. So you're basically planning like the curriculum of your life. So you're educating yourself not just about um, you know something that you might be able to learn in school or you know some craft or trade or um, discipline. It's like you're actually you're being your not only not only will you teach yourself those things whatever you know however it fits into your specific life, but you're teaching yourself what um, um, you know you're being a mentor to yourself. You're teaching yourself life lessons. You're teaching yourself anyway anything that can be taught, um, not just limited to like I said, just not not limited to just some like intellectual pursuit or or you know pra- or even a practical pursuit. It's like well practical in the sense of you know like working with your hands, doing something to earn a living, um, you know, doing a, a certain like uh, you know even if it's just like art or sculpting or something like that. It's like no, how does that fit into your life as a whole, and how is that um, how is that uh, how does that fit in with your overall, um, you know, developmental path? Mm-hmm. How will this be good for you in, you know, in this way and that way and in all all these ways? And yeah, I think you're you're fundamentally choosing a, a future. I think when you mm-hmm. when you do that, you're you're transforming your future in, in a way that that is quite uh, quite profound, really. When you look at people who have educated themselves and who have done it conscientiously. Um, you can see that they go through, they keep going through doorways and they keep going through changes, you know, developmental changes. And like mm-hmm. you said, they become somebody that if they hadn't made those choices, they would be, they wouldn't have come anywhere close to being, mm-hmm. you know, in, in terms of their, you know, value really as a human being. I mean, I think we all know that person who they might not be a, um, a stellar rock star or a PhD or, or utterly profound, but you, they have uh, they've adopted this in one way or another, and they've influenced people around them in that way, in a better way. It's like uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, talk about, um, it's not just about winning a game. If you get into a game, the goal isn't just to win the game. The game is to win the series of games, the greatest number of possible games that you can be a part of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it's a good shift in thinking to get outside of, you know, how do I win this game to how can I play in the greatest number of games that I can handle. Right. Yeah, and I think that kind of that ties back into what I was trying to explain or trying to get into with that example of uh like James McDonald and the just like um specific scientific communities it's like a lot of people in in a scientific community they just want to be like the top in their field Mm -hmm. and that's the only goal that they have so this would be like one-sided development like we talked about last Mm -hmm. week so this is someone who's developed themselves to a certain degree in a very specific in a very like limited area of their life whereas it seems like a a person like james mcdonald or you know any any other person like you know mavericks of their fields they they are experts in their fields but 
what makes them exemplary is that they seem to have like something more. There are, there are other things that are important to them other than just being at the top, at the top of their field. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads them in different directions. That was, that's what leads them to a- ask new questions and to, well, essentially they, they become, um, there seems to be a correlation for, like for these types of people to be, um, what might be considered like actual, um, well, mentors would, might be a role that they play, but like exemplars of a, of a wider, uh, like type of humanity. It's like, they're not just like, you know, James McDonald wasn't just, uh, an atmospheric physicist, you know, whereas a lot of his colleagues were, you know, or at least, um, um, well, roughly speaking, um, but there's something more to these individuals. It's like so they're not just developing their scientific, you know, themselves in their scientific field. There's some, there's that kind of like indescribable something else that's going on that uh, that that's it's palpable. Like you can you can sense it, but you can't necessarily like put it into words, or at least I can't right now. But <laughs> but uh, but you know, it could be put into words if I would think about it more. But uh, but what I what I wanted to to tie together with this, of this is this concept of self-education and the way Dabrowski looked at it um, with this other aspect too, is that he'd said that basically self-education was like um, almost, well, almost the same as or like encompassed uh, auto-psychotherapy like we talked about last week, is that that, that basically auto-psychotherapy is a form of self-education. So what is auto-psychotherapy? Well, it's that uh, it's when you become your own therapist essentially. So you're the one that determines the strategies to to deal with the you know the stresses of life and you you don't rely on someone else to do that for you it's basically a form of self-regulation and like a higher form of self-regulation because early on most infants you know as they grow up most children learn to self-regulate their own emotions for instance like when you're first born your parents your mother primarily self or regulates your emotions for you you know when you cry she comforts you you know etc when you're hungry she feeds you when you grow up, you acquire those, um, you know, those abilities for yourself. But there's a higher level of self-regulation that, uh, you know, that that uh, that can apply, you know, in the adult world, where a lot of people don't have it, and some people do. So it's like that's why. Um, um, well, how this fits into self-education is that that subject-object division in oneself. It's like part of you takes on the higher role of identifying what's going on inside of you like within you and then coming up with the strategy to deal with it it's like okay well this is the problem i'm experiencing right now well what can i do about this well i'm going to do you know a b and c and that can be you know as simple as um um you know adopting let's say like a meditation practice or you know you you've got your own strategies for dealing with certain stresses in your life and but your own plans too it's like okay well i know that this situation and this environment really you know, isn't good for me for whatever reason. So you plan your life, you know, to uh, to avoid those things when, whenever you can to find like a, a, a strategy or find an environment where um, you really can thrive. And this ties back to what we read in Insight and what we talked about. That's one of the, the kind of aspects of self-awareness is knowing your fit, you know, where where things work for you and where they don't. But at the same time, part of your strategy is going to be, okay, well, I know that I won't always be able to control my environment. So how am I going to deal with the situations when I can't control my environment? Well, that's, you know, that's where that kind of self-control and self-regulation comes into play. Like all of these things are things that you think about, plan for, develop, and then put into practice on your own. Um, that's really what auto-psychotherapy is. And that is a form of self-learning. That also is self-education. And that's why, you know, Dabrowski tied this so closely with development. It's like, 
um, you're, you're teaching yourself not only a skill or a subject matter, you're teaching yourself how to, like, uh, how to survive and, and grow in whatever environment you find yourself in. So there are, um, so the, the limits are really kind of endless for the types of things that you can, um, well, start to teach yourself, essentially. Yeah, and I, I think that we, we come programmed with, obviously, brain systems that are constantly reading the environment and determining, like, well, is everything good? Is everything fit? You know, and, but the, they're really primitive. You know, we, the, the higher-order systems that we have in order to, you know, that, that acquire you know, critical thinking and analyzing information, are, those are the ones that we want that, ideally, we'd strive to develop to use so that we can read the environment critically, like a book, so that we can see what's going on in the environment, we can judge it, we can evaluate it, and then we can base our actions based on you know critical awareness rather than you know the hypothalamus saying, okay, mm -hmm. the temperature's fine, so everything's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that's um, obviously that's that's suboptimal for anybody who's trying to strive for you know mm -hmm. for higher development. Well, any other thoughts on this little book that you read, Corey? Any other subjects we didn't get to yet? No, I think that covers no. it. Uh, there was one little, um, I don't know if it was little or not, I can't remember, but there was a, a section that, you know, he has different sections for uh, planning for reading, you know, the the four-level uh, types of reading from Mortimer Adler. Um, but there was one in particular that I thought was useful, and it was his section on speed reading mm. um, that I thought was really useful to know Um there was, I think, two different kinds, but the one that really stuck out to me and was useful uh, in reading the the book um, that you gave me from uh, David R. Griffin, mm -hmm. uh, and it's basically, um, you know, you have uh, a sentence, and the sentence has, you know, filler words, the, at, in, or whatever. Um, and so his point was, you don't have to read every single word of every single line on every single page. You just have to get enough of the sentence to get the context of what's being said. So like, um, I can't think of an example exactly, but, you know, instead of, you know, reading a 20-word sentence, you could just, you know, understand that, you know, cat sat hat. Mm -hmm. So the cat sat on the hat, and you don't have to read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. hmm. And I just thought that was, you know, really useful and cool. Yeah, I tried doing a, a speed reading software a while ago, but I didn't. I didn't stick with it, so I don't know. I think I got it a little bit faster, but uh, maybe I should. Uh, I should self-educate myself, and, <laughs> and uh, you probably don't need to read any faster. <laughs> no, I'm I'm slow reader. <coughs> but speaking of reading, since we're coming up uh, on the the last third of the show, um, one thing that uh, we wanted to do was uh, talk a little bit about the books we read last year. Specifically, the books that we didn't talk about, because you know um, we talked about a lot of books last year, and those were all books that we read. Um, just to kind of uh, give a little summary, um, a reminder in case you might have might have wanted to read one of those books and then forgot about it. Um, I'll just gonna I'm just gonna go over some of the books that we talked about last year. Um, Warning to the West, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, that was a good one. And then we talked. We had that show on uh, on Young, so we read The Aryan Christ by Richard Knoll. And um, Corey and I read uh, Walter Walter Burkett's Savage Energies, 
lessons of myth and ritual in ancient Greece, which was pretty interesting. A bit kind of like um, um, academic, but uh, but interesting too. If you can adopt the, uh, Adam's reading strategy and just kind of skip the, the bits that you don't need to read, um, uh, there's some interesting. But things plan on reading do. it twice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> skip a lot the first few times. <laughs> but then one book, uh, one book that I read that we didn't talk about because I started reading it after we did that show is um, uh, Deirdre Bear's uh, Young, a biography. So this is like a massive, like 700, 800 page biography of Carl Jung. And just if anyone thought that show was interesting and really kind of wants to devote some time into to learning more about uh, Jung, I, I would recommend this book. I think it's a, it's a good kind of, um, you know, balance to Richard Knowles' take on Jung because uh, really it, like his writing is, I would say, like very biased from from his perspective, like there are other perspectives on Jung. Um, I think a lot of the stuff he says is valid, but if you want to get like a bigger picture of, of Jung's life and how all that stuff in that book kind of fits into the bigger picture, I think, you know, Bear does a, a much better job of, pro, of providing uh, like all the extra data um, for, you know, for how all those events kind of fit into the, to the bigger picture of his life. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend that. But then probably I'd say that the worst book that I read last year was also on Jung by uh, Sonu Shamdasani called Young Stripped Bear by his biographers even. And this is a, basically a criticism of all the biographies that existed, well, that, that, are, that are you know in print or have been written since Young's life. Um, and his criticism of all of them, including Deirdre Bear's. But the reason I thought it was so bad is that uh, because I had just read um, Bear's book and I had it on the table in front of me as I was reading this really short book uh, by Shamdasani, is that uh, anytime that he would like criticize something from Bear's book and give a reason for it, I'd be like, okay, well, let me go and see what she actually says. And like in probably eight out of ten um, examples of these criticisms, I found that he was like either had totally misread her or was totally misrepresenting what she'd actually written. And the only times that he actually gave um, uh, reasons for disagreeing with her, he'd cite, oh, personal communication with some relative of Young. And not say what they said, or or you know give any kind of or reason for why he believes them and not her. And so it was just a, a terrible book because um, he was really just like a uh, um, a young he really is a young groupie, and just like the, the the purpose of this book was to defend Young's image and show why all, why all these biographers are wrong. And he really didn't do a very good job about it. So uh, don't read that book unless you want to. Uh, um, go through the same process I did, which you might want to do. Then, of course, uh, Consciousness and Anatomy of the Soul, which was one of my favorites. Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt, another great one. And Evolution 2.0, very enjoyable. Um, and then um, we read Strange Contagion by Lee Daniel Kravitz on uh, social contagions, which was really interesting if you want to get into why... Uh, well, we, the, the I think the way we framed it was around. While he doesn't talk about this, was around the uh, kind of gender dysphoria and especially like the what do they call it? The um, like rapid onset gender dysphoria, especially in like teenage girls. So if you want to understand why something like that's going on, uh, that was that one. And of course, uh, Tasha Yurik's uh, insight, Nassim Taleb's skin in the game. If you like that ornery Mediterranean guy who is you know very entertaining, very Check entertaining, very disagreeable. <laughs> Antonio Damasio's strange order of things on how consciousness arises from the, the feelings of our parts. Um, and then, of course, we talked about uh, uh, we talked a lot about Alfred North Whitehead. So I actually read four books by or related to Knight, uh, Whitehead last year. Um, well, relating to the topic today, he there's a book 
one of his um, one of the last books he read before he kind of got into philosophy was a collection of lectures that he gave in like well the book was published I think in like 1923 or something and the book was called aims of education and I actually really liked this one even though some of it's kind of out of date because the you know the education system was kind of pretty different back then especially you know he's writing uh, from the UK so you know he's talking about like you know learning Latin and Greek and all these things that we don't learn in our education system but there's just a lot of real gems in there for for um, that you can you know he's writing these he's giving these lectures to educators in the UK and basically saying well this is what we need to change this is what we need to do differently this is what we need to do the same or this is what we used to do that we don't do anymore that we need to put back into practice but all these things that he's talking about really um, or not all of them but some of them can be applied to kind of self-education because he's really talking about um, well here's how kids work here's how the, how you need to teach these subjects so that they actually learn here are the things you shouldn't do so there are some very practical things for actual educators but at the same time the concepts in there like uh, i think some even kind of seeped into the things i was talking about today about like the especially about the motivation and, and it's like you have to you have to make things interesting and you have to make them um, like tangible like when you can't just teach things theoretically but you need to have a, a practical aspect to it too where you can actually put the put the concept into practice um, like with your hands essentially to to really solidify the knowledge so and that was called aims of education yep the aims of education by whitehead and then religion in the making which i quoted from um one of the shows then we read uh we talked a little bit about god exists but god does not by david ray griffin and um um Principles of Art by Richard Collingwood, or not Richard, Robin Collingwood, sorry. That was also one of my favorites from the year. But then as for books that we didn't talk about, um, well, there are actually some books that uh, that came out last year that we didn't even get to read, at least I haven't read them yet. So these were one, are ones that maybe we'll get to this year, um, but uh, some of the books that came out last year, both Dean Radin and Ru Rupert Sheldrake came out with new books last year. Dean Radin uh, released Real Magic, and Rupert Sheldrake um, released Science and Spiritual Practices. So I've actually I've been looking forward to reading these, but haven't gotten around to them yet. So Dean Radin, uh, as far as I know, he kind of approaches the book as, you know, well, he actually he looks at the the magical tradition. So the history of kind of um, um, like uh, well, more modern like magical practices, like uh, you know, the Crowley-esque kind of stuff. But going back to the, the entire kind of Hermetic tradition and looking at the principles of of um, you know like alchemy and all of the kind of you know weird stuff that were people were doing in the last several hundred years, um, and looking at those principles and then finding or showing how they relate to um, like modern psi, modern parapsychological -psycholo research, and kind of for finding the correspondences there. So that looked pretty interesting to me. I don't know how good it'll be, but we'll see. And then Rupert Sheldrake was talking about um, like spiritual practices, like uh, I think. Um, like one of them, like, like prayer and meditation and maybe, you know, um, again, I'll have to read the book to know, but uh, if that kind of thing is interesting, check that out. And another book that I wanted to read that came out last year was by Wim Van Dulleman on it, uh, the Gurdjieff movements, it's called. So this is a book, um, the first book written about Gurdjieff's basically dance routines. <laughs> so uh, again, I don't know what the focus is going to be or like, you know, what he's actually going to get into, but uh, piqued my interest. And then one that came out like a year ago, so beginning of last year that I still haven't gotten around to is uh, Norman Finkelstein's Gaza, uh, an inquest into its martyrdom. So that's a, um, it covers like all the Gaza, all the recent Gazan wars and what's going on there. And it's supposed to be in 
uh, supposed to be kind of definitive. And no, knowing Norman Finkelstein, you know that's going to be um, really rigorous and um, probably scathing and biting and uh, again ornery and disagreeable, which is the, the one of the best things about Norman Finkelstein. And then, of course, Jonathan Haidt had another book that came out last year. Haven't read it yet. Coddling of the American Mind. So we'll probably be getting be getting to that one, and I'm assuming we'll we'll probably even do a show on it. And another one, this one, uh, Jordan Peterson recommended that uh, um, just came out like last part of last year by Heather McDonald called the Diversity Del- Delusion. And so this is about like uh, gender and race, uh, like diver- diversity um, programs. Um, I think in the universities, but probably in politics and in workplaces too. Um, one to check out. Um, but diversity is good. Well, always. Uh, that's what you think. But how are we doing for time? Uh, One twenty. Should we? Okay. Well, um, well, are there are there any other books that you guys read that you uh, want to either recommend or um, talk about a little bit? Otherwise, I've got a whole list here. Of- <laughs> Well, there was the one um, that I read on your recommendation, which you know I presume you'd read a while back, which was the Leadership Genius of Oh yeah Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. That one was amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think uh, anyone who doesn't like that book, just uh, something wrong with them. Well, not necessarily. It's just you have to you have to be in the right mindset to appreciate it. It's like you're not going into this like looking for uh, a great historical treatise. You're going into this. Like you're reading a book by a, like what is he like a business, like, well he isn't this, but essentially like a business like motivational speaker type guy, like yeah. Tony Robbins type guy, yeah. self help. Like uh, that's the style of that's it. That's the sure. style. So know what you're getting into, but then realize that uh, that Caesar is so awesome that um, that probably that's the only kind of guy that can do him justice is because <laughs> because he's just such like such a badass. Yeah. Some of the some of the stories that he uses to convey like just how much of a leadership genius mm-hmm. he was, you're just like this guy was, yeah, yeah. When you read like academic works and academic biographies, very interesting but very dry, and they don't really give the essence of you know who Caesar was and why he was such a good leader. This kind of like really distills it. It's like oh, here's the principle, here's the story, and that's why it's awesome. So. It's short too, so if you actually want to be entertained and read something that is like uh, can feed your soul a little bit and uh, and elevate your elevate your mind, then check that one out. Well, speaking of that one, uh, I read two other books on uh, ancient Rome that I would recommend. Um, one was um, well, actually, this one I recommend the most. It was Caesar's Legacy: Civil War and the Emergence of the Roman Empire by Josiah Osgood. Um, this is a a history of the years right after. Um, Caesar's assassination and before you know Augustus becomes the first emperor so these like this is the civil war uh, in these middle years that often gets neglected by historians of the period you know they'll either they'll, they'll just kind of skip over them or include them in histories of the you know before or after but this really focuses on the civil war with the with the <clears throat> with the goal of trying to get all perspectives on this war so especially from like the from like the ordinary people so um, he kind of looks at all the evidence from archaeology to like poetry to um, to the, the histories that have been written, but really looking for the the things that might be hinted at that aren't explicitly said. But um, so you know what was going on with conscriptions and um, you know basically like 
um, hit lists, mm-hmm. you know, assassination lists, and uh, you know, property that was being confiscated, towns that were basically razed or um, you know razed to the ground, um, destroyed, um, all of the you know all the people that were killed, and basically how the one thing that st- stands out to me is that um, from this period of this history, which was extremely violent, um, a lot of uh, well, some of the comments, uh, some of the commentators of this period, like early on basically said that this period was so bad that it made it made people um, wish for the like the the time that came before which was the civil war with Caesar and Pompey so as bad as like the civil war of you know Caesar and Pompey was that in Rome this was so much worse that um, that it it threw everything kind of into into perspective it's like wow it's like we thought that you know the last 10 years were bad well mm-hmm. you know this is where things have gone and then um, this one I wouldn't recommend as much just because it's a harder read is the Patrician Tribune, Publius Clodius Pulcher um, by Jeffrey Tatum. So this is about the one of the you know associates of Caesar in his life, um, the Patrician Tribune. This was a Clodius who was involved in the, the famous Bona, Bona Dea scandal, you know, dressed up as a woman to, to get into, was it Caesar's mother's house, Caesar's wife's house during the Bona Dea festival and got caught allegedly trying to... Um, steal steal a woman steal caesar's woman and then caesar divorced her well this is a story about his life and his career um i'd I'd recommend checking checking it out if you uh if you like roman history at all because it's a it's a new book it's like the only book in english that's uh, devoted history to um clodius um and there's some good stuff in there i like the way he thinks so check that one out and uh just in terms of uh you know the the modern kind of progressive retardation of of, uh, of western culture i've i read a book by murray rothbard he's a revisionist historian i don't know if he's still around but it, this didn't come out in 2018 but i did read this uh last year and it's called the progressive era and he basically goes just point by point and illustrates basically the secret history behind the progressive era and how big business allied with big uh, with political progressives in order to enforce the 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 really dominant kind of uh, fascist inclinations that these politicians had. And it was a really good read in uh, association with uh, liberal fascism, which I'm not sure, we didn't have a show on that, but there have been several great articles up on, on Saad, at least one in particular that I'm thinking of that was a Saad focus. Um, but yeah, that was uh, both those books were really excellent in terms of seeing the, uh, the history of this modern kind of progressive movement. Hmm. Well, I know we don't really talk about politics that much, like geopolitics. We leave that uh, newsreel with Joe and Neil. But um, I'd, re- I'd like to recommend just a few like political books that uh, that I've looked at over the last year or so. Um, first, I, I got into Thomas Sowell, um, who's a great you know conservative philosopher and thinker and economist. And I read two books by him. One was the housing boom and boom and bust. So this is an analysis of the uh, you know the housing boom and bust in t- uh, two thousand eight. Um, kind of all the all the stuff that you didn't know about the housing boom and bust. Um, check it out if you know if you're interested in all in the, at all in that subject. And then the another one was his latest book from last year, Discrimination and Disparities. So all about exactly what the title says it's about. Um, and if you know anything about Thomas Sowell, you know that he's a very clear, you know, concise writer. Um, he's fairly easy to understand, and he backs everything up with, uh, you know, with sources and gives good reasons for disagreeing with kind of the, the mainstream position on just about everything. So that's a good one to check out. 
And uh, of course, if you haven't read it yet, Grand Deception by Alex Craner on Bill Browder, the Magnitsky Act, and anti-Russian sanctions. The book that Amazon banned um, because Bill Browder's lawyers basically threatened Amazon to, to take it down, which Amazon complied with. To Amazon's great shame, great and eternal shame, Jeff Bezos should be shouldn't be he able to sleep at night. Divorced. He should, he should get divorced <laughs> and lose half of his empire. Yep. And then, oh wait, yeah, yeah, that was actually us. No, no, we we couldn't couldn't have done that. It's impossible. No, it was karma. Um, and one book that I'm still reading because it's really long, but I'd recommend it is uh, by Gordon Hahn, who we had on the we had on uh, behind the headlines, I think, or the truth. No, no, it must have been the truth perspective sometime. Oh, I can't even remember if it was last year or the year before. Um, <clears throat> we had him on to talk about, I think we had him to, to talk about, um, um, what was it? Was it Russia's Islamic threat? Because that was one of his first books. So basically like uh, on Chechnya, the Chechen wars, and um, <laughs> and uh, his, well, research on that. But he's got a book that just came out last year called Ukraine Over the Edge, um, uh, Russia, the West, and the New Cold War. So I got this, you know, expecting a book about you, the, you know, the the Maidan and the, you know, the the Ukrainian revolution that uh, led to the to the new regime in uh, in Ukraine, and that's what the book's about. But actually, I've just gotten to that part of the book because the first half of it is like this intensive history of, um, you know, like going back as far as you need to go back to get an idea of like the entire political history of Ukraine. Um, uh, and its relations with you know the with the rest of the world, with Russia, with the West, with Poland, and you know all of the different factors that have contributed to the present st- or to the to the then present state of Ukraine. So uh, basically, it's an explanation of all the existing kind of cracks in the system and potential um, sources of conflict and and schism, and um, and then all of the political events leading up to leading up to that event, and all the re- all the relevant kind of geopolitics between the West and Russia and all of the relevant like theorizing about it. So Brzezinski and, uh, and Dugan and so the Western kind of theorists and the Russian theorists and their perspective on, on geopolitics and why, um, you know, why certain regions of the world are important and, and battled over by the two superpowers and, um, and then everything leading up to the revolution. So like the democracy promotion and, um, um, from like USAID and NED and basically, it's it's like in depth, um, extremely, um, extremely in depth. So there's he didn't, doesn't really leave anything out. So I'd I'd recommend that if you want like a you know, a book that gets into everything relating to to the Maidan and the current situation in Ukraine, I'd recommend that. Like he talks about you know all the relevant events even like that aren't directly related. So the 2008 Georgian War. And, uh, you know, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the expansion of NATO and the way the EU and NATO work and when they basically, you know, uh, co-opt um, ex-Soviet countries and um, just really interesting. And yeah. in the spirit of Russia, the Russian mind, um, there was one book. I'm not sure if you mentioned it yet, but uh, it was a biography that came out, with, I believe it was last year, by Daniel Todes. It's a biography of Ivan Pavlov. Mm-hmm. And it's about 900 pages long, but it's, if you like Russian history, if you like history in general, and you're interested in the rise of communism and the Soviet Union, and you have an interest in psychology and the, and real, uh, a real life example of positive disintegration that took, plas- that took place over 
you know, five or six decades. This biography gives you the, the most insightful look at Ivan Pavlov, the famous Russian physiologist, who had, I think, believe was the first Russian who won the Nobel Prize, and uh, how he reacted uh, to the Bolshevik threat, how he struggled uh, after his uh, family, or he, I, lost, I think he lost one son to the revolution and another son to fleeing the country from revolution. One, side, uh, one son died in the conflict, another one passed away, but through, you know, just uh, mental breakdowns, through grief, through struggling in his career in a, in a university environment that was filled with um, the kinds of revolutionary type socialists that we see today and the entitled children that would get professors thrown out just for simply making them pass exams. Um, the book really, it's, uh, I've still, I'm just only about halfway through it because like I said, it's 900 pages long, but it is a fascinating uh, look into that period of time and into a man with just a uh, real tremendous character. Maybe uh, the last little series of books that we'll mention here before shutting down for the day. Um, I mentioned earlier the the books I was reading on uh, early Christianity and the you know the New Testament writings. Well, um, I mentioned one of these books you know several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago. Um, by Colleen Chance. I forgot the title at the time, so I'll give it now. It was called uh, Paul in Ecstasy. It's uh, written, or it came out in 2009. And so this is the book that was about, um, it's kind of like half about altered states of consciousness and religious experiences and the latest research on you know those types of phenomena, and then relating them specifically to like passages in Paul and basically arguing that um, you know all of Paul's kind of theology and, uh, well, and, you know, his visions and writings and stuff come out of these altered states of consciousness, and that actually can explain, you know, the, the experience he had that he, that he was trying to put into words in his various, you know, letters. So, really interesting book from both perspectives. I recommend checking that one out. And then as for the, the topic I was, I was talking about, about, um, like, intertextuality and mimesis, um, there's a book by Adam Wynn called Mark and the Elijah-Elisha Narrative, Considering the practice of Greco-Roman imitation in the search for Mark and source material. Kind of a boring-sounding title, but a very interesting book because um, there's a, it's a short book, and the first section is basically um, an analysis of what he actually means by mimesis. And so he uses the example of um, uh, Virgil, was it Virgil or Ovid? I can't remember. Um, and, um, oh, Virgil, and uh, Homer. So how Virgil's Aeneid was basically modeled on um, uh, on like the Iliad and the Odyssey, and how there's this literary pro- process of mimesis where um, you take like the themes and some of the 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 the, the over like the overarching narrative and um, basically use that to to create a new work. So it's I, it's obvious to or it should be obvious to a reader that's experience that has uh, that's familiar with with the original works that this is what's being what's being done, but there aren't necessarily any direct verbal parallels. So this becomes important for biblical studies because a lot of times when people are looking at like gospels and stuff, they'll only identify a source for that material if there's like a direct um, word for word copying. Right? That's how we, how scholars determined that Luke and Matthew used the Gospel of Mark because of the um, the corresponding. Uh, passages, and that's how they identify like quotations from scripture um, when when there's like a direct quotation. But this is kind of like a 
uh, a new element that's been introduced into the field of biblical studies is this looking at this this mimesis where you can find um, something that is obviously modeled on an older story but that doesn't necessarily have the direct you know copying of wording so he compares this like i said earlier the, the gospel of mark to um the the kings the elijah elisha narrative in the in uh, the books of kings in the old testament and um and then he had a second book that just came out last year that I read too called Reading Mark's Christology Under Caesar, Jesus, the Messiah, and Roman Imperial Ideology, where he basically argues that the Gospel of Mark was written right after the Jewish War um, because it seems to be, um, when you look at the specifics in the text, that the, that the Gospel of Mark was actually a reaction. It was kind of like counter-propaganda against the Flavian propaganda from the emperors, the Roman emperors at the time. Because if you look at the the propaganda that we know that Flav- the Flavians were putting out about themselves, um, there are direct kind of uh, parallels with the way that Mark presents Jesus, and basically saying, "Oh, well, this is what the emperor says about himself. Well, well, Jesus is everything that the emperor is, and like and and better." So it's basically one upping the emperor, which is uh, a, a really interesting take on why the, the Gospel of Mark was actually written. And which leads into the next book that also came out last year called the Deciphering the Gospels. Um, it's called Deciphering the Gospels Proves Jesus Never Existed by R.G. Price. And this guy is um, kind of a, um, he's a mythicist, so he doesn't believe that uh, Jesus was a real person. He thinks that the original Jesus was a, uh, like a mythological, like celestial being that was worshipped by the early Christians. And he argues something similar to what Wynne did in the, in the previous book, that, um, that the Gospel of Mark was written in response to the to the Roman uh, Jewish war where the temple was destroyed. And so this was, it was written for a specific purpose and it was written using the, the kind of mimesis techniques that, uh, that Wynn mentioned in his previous book to basically create a story. Like he basically, this guy Price argues that the Gospel of Mark wasn't even written as a history to start out with. It was an allegory. It was like, uh, it was written for the purpose of explaining the, you know, the fall of Jerusalem and um, basically using using the Old Testament, using Old Testament stories and narratives and themes, and using the letters of Paul and and putting basically the teachings of Paul in the mouth of this character, Jesus. And that he goes through um, like the first kind of hundred years of hist- of Christian history and goes on how that developed in further gospels and how, how because of the existence of this gospel of Mark and this figure of Jesus, how that then became a real person. It's like, oh, well, well actually, no, Jesus was a real person and this is what happened uh, you know, this is the life he led based on the Gospel of Mark. Well, this guy argues that, well, that all happened, but the Gospel of Mark wasn't written as history. It was written as an allegory using all these old texts and basically, you know, using stories from the Old Testament to create scenes for this Jesus character as a kind of an allegorical vehicle for um, for this perspective to to give a response to the to the to the Jewish War and the um, you know, the, the, the situation in Rome at the time uh, under the emperor, under the empire. So yeah, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, check it out. If not, then just forget what I just said for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> well, everybody, I think that does it for us today. Uh, we, I hope that you found something uh, useful in our discussion of the book reading and researching exercises, and that hopefully you found something uh, to follow, some thread to follow up on in our description of all the, the books. Yeah. All the books that we've been reading. Plan your reading list for the next plan, year. Help you plan your reading list. May 2019 be a, a year of tremendous growth and knowledge. But uh, do you guys have anything else you'd like to say? Nope. Nope. Well, then that does it for us today. Thank you very much. You have a great week, everybody.
Bye bye. Bye. Have fun reading. <laughs>